you animals out there? Are you ready? Well, you better buckle up because it's time for the show, ladies and gentlemen. Straight out of your sister's bedroom, it's your girlfriend's favorite podcast. Without further ado, it's the Wing Scoops Podcast with your host, Wee Needle. I'm doing just fine, Wade. Um, I'm not sure I can live up to your um, introduction there, but I'm sure as heck going to try. I've had a lot of people ask me about my background. And since I have the benefit of being old, as a lot of people, including Wade, remind me, um, I should mention the first time I ever went to a wrestling show was in Norfolk, Virginia in 1951. The background on that is my dad was a Navy officer. We lived in Norfolk, which is the largest uh, naval base in the country. And I had been viewing with some of my friends on TV clips from various wrestling promotions. I loved him. I asked my dad, would you take me to the matches? My dad had no use for wrestling. Couldn't understand why I wanted to get into it. So I think I spent one summer begging and generally annoying him enough that he finally decided to take me to a show at the City Auditorium, which he did. Got me ringside seats. I sat down there and loved it. Then one time, he got off duty, off duty at the station late, and came in in his full uniform. When he did, the promoter in Norfolk, Big Bell Lewis, who weighed probably 325 pounds or so, saw my dad in uniform. Now. The shows in Norfolk were probably 50% sailors, and we ran, they ran weekly shows. I believe it was Friday night, and he had a lot of problems with so many sailors being there, but it was a great problem for him because he had a built-in audience for anything that went on in the ring. The sailors loved the show, but they tended to get, how should I say, a little over-dramatic with things that were going on. And uh, anyway, he came over and he asked my dad, he said, Lieutenant Mott, I've seen your son here. Uh, do you have any, any juice with the uh, shore patrol office at the Navy base? My dad said, yeah, I do have some juice with him. He says, you know, if you could just talk with them, I've got enough cops in here from Norfolk, but I can't seem to get through the red tape on the shore patrol. Maybe if you could help me get some of those guys, I'd feel much better. And he says, and 
if your son would like it, I can give him free ringside tickets for our Friday night shows. Bam, I was in seventh heaven. And my dad says, yes, I can do that. Well, in Norfolk, in Richmond, now Bill Lewis promoted in Richmond also. Um, he had been working as a professional wrestler as the Bluebeard, Bill Lewis. But um, his shows were, to put it mildly, they were rather wild. About every month, we'd have a riot of some type going on. Now, I stepped on my first professional mat at the age of 11 and a half. Not as a wrestler, but I was given a broom to sweep it off. But I was part of the wrestling world at that time. And my schoolmates thought I was a king because I was, as I told them, I was a member of the group that put on the wrestling shows. That was a little bit of an exaggeration. Oh, come on. No. <laughs> work, work is work. Work is work. And if they wanted to believe it, that's what it was. Anyway, and I'm going to mention some names that most of you, if you're as young as Wade is and the people I work with, you won't, you may not know. But um, I'm going to go over just a couple of shows we did. Now, I should mention that I wound up, because of the fact that this was in the days of kayfabe, and in Norfolk and Richmond, the promoter enforced that strictly. I was able to sweep not only the map, but I could sweep by the locker room and if it got really dirty I could go in there but only after all the wrestlers had left again because kayfabe was enforced one of the wrestlers that uh, was a real heel was a guy named Brother Frank Jarrett's otherwise known as the Mormon Mauler from Utah and the other one I can think of right now, some of you may know the name, George Becker. Becker was someone next to God in Norfolk at his shows. He and Jarris had a, a go-home show, and I was in cleaning the locker room out while they were having the match and I heard a loud roar come and then screaming and yelling and I looked out of the locker room and Brother Jarris had just gone out of the ring, out of the ring there and George Becker was laying on the floor with blood coming from his forehead and there were fans and cops and shore patrol, everything right next to brother Frank Jarris, and he was running up the aisle. He had beer, blood, coffee, spraying off of his body as he came up. I looked at him and I thought, my God, this man is crazy. And again, kayfabe was enforced. I saw him and I thought, I'm gonna get out of his way. So 
this 11-year-old kid ran back into the locker room, and I found the highest place I could get in the locker room, and I climbed up on it and tried to get myself cling, just cling to the, the wooden things there so that he wouldn't see me. Then all of a sudden, I heard a crash, and, I looked, and the locker room door was just going back and forth, and he was coming in, with, and the cops were following him in, and I'm up there, and I thought, okay, at 11 years old, I've had a good life, but this is it. And he came running up with that blood and beer and everything coming off of him, screeched up to where I was, stopped dead in his tracks, reached down to his gearbox, pulled out a $5 bill. Now remember, this is 1951. It was a lot of money. Yeah. Pulled in, and, and he says, hey, kid, here's five bucks for watching my stuff. And here, that was the first inkling I had. There's more to bi that business than I knew, and that started my path downwards uh, wow. into the world of pro wrestling, which I have never, ever left it. I loved the business. I loved it when I was a kid. And now that I'm more than a little bit older than a kid, I still love it. Um, I do have to tell you one more quick story about Norfolk. Okay. And again, you've probably never heard of the Dusick brothers. Okay, that was Ernie and Amo. They were the first ones in pro wrestling that had the name the Riot Squad. They were tough, rough guys. You'd have to be with a name like that. That's exactly right, Wade. That's exactly right. They had a match with, I believe it was a match with Bobby Becker and Gene Stanley. Now, Gene Stanley was normally a bad guy, but one of the wrestlers hadn't shown up, so the promoter put him in with... Um, with, with Bobby Decker, and they were the good guys. Ernie and Amon lived up to the name of the Riot Squad. And um, the day before when I came in, I was asked to go down to the um, Army-Navy store and buy the cheapest Army outfit I could find. I, wouldn't, I didn't ask why or anything else, but I went down there. I got the uniform, I bought it back. So that night, as I'm standing up by the little locker room door, I look out, and I see Ernie Dusick coming out, and he's got this naval, I'm sorry, this army outfit on. It's a little scrunchy looking, but it, you knew what it was, he was army. And in those days, we didn't have television cameras and the internet and everything else. Everything happened at the minute. Ernie and Amel are walking down by the first two rows of sailors, all sailors, and they're talking about what's going to happen to Becker and his friend. And then Ernie says, you know, Amel, I was told we were going to have some tough men for competition down here. I see the bunch of these panty waist and sailor outfits. 
I don't think we need to worry. The sailors came unglued. They're trying to get at Dusik and everything, and everything just fell apart. Again, the cops came down. It tells you that wrestling has always had a hold on people. They feel those people there, whether they're good guys or bad guys, they are letting you exist in a different world for a few minutes. Okay, wait, that's enough of my soapbox. Uh, let me think of some of the other stuff. That uh, it is, it's, it's fascinating, though, because psychology and kayfabe and stuff like that is like, it's a dying thing today. It's a lot of, especially kayfabe. Yeah. With the advent of the internet, social media, everybody wants to get involved. Everybody wants to be liked. Nobody wants to be a heel for the sake of being an actual, real, genuine heel. They want to be the cool, hip, bad guy and get cheered for it. And it just makes no sense. Right. Well, let me tell you. And you look at what's going on in the wrestling world today. Again, when I started out... The shows there were run on a weekly basis, so you can imagine what it took to get people coming back every week yeah. to see. And Lewis, as a promoter, in my mind, was one of the best around. Since that was a Navy base, he was always making some kind of competition for sailors to get into, like a sailor's knot. And they would get five of the guys from one ship would get in and tie knots fast. And whoever won, their ship would get in half price at his next week's show. He used every trick in the world to get people to want to come. Promotion, promotion, promotion. That was the name of the game. Anyway, and I worked with that for a while, never as a wrestler. But if somebody, again, I was really good at sweeping the mat. Um, then my dad got assigned to Panama Canal Zone. So we left Virginia and I was in Panama for three to four years down there and had a great time. Came back to the States and uh, got a job in the retail grocery business. And then living in Azusa, then we would drive, I believe it's every Sunday night, out to the long gone and long lamented San Bernardino Arena. Any of you that know the arena, it's got memories from the word go on it. Uh, it just, it saddens me now to think it's just an empty parking lot, but that's the way it is. Anyway, my wife, who puts up with me, would drive with me out to the arena, the 45 miles or something, and we would go to San Bernardino and see Wild Red Berry, uh, Fez, all sorts of the great names of the business. I also, at that time, got the opportunity to see the number one indie promoter around in Southern California, as far as I'm concerned, Jesse Hernandez. Jesse uh, would be working an early match, 
And then I'll always remember at intermission, Jesse would climb into the ring with a big box around his middle and he would be hawking tickets for next week's show, which people bought. And it was just amazing. But that is what I found with Jesse. There's nothing in the wrestling world he hasn't done. Okay, I'm giving him a commercial. I'll charge him for it later. But I wound up meeting with he and Bill Anderson. They ran a wrestling school on 40th Street in San Bernardino. And I went over there and helped them with that a little bit. Um, at one point, Jesse and Bill decided to part ways, and I wound up staying here. Bill went to Arizona, and I asked Jesse if he could use some help, and he says, yeah. So I took him up on it, and again. What time period was this? I'm sorry. That would have been in the late 60s, I believe. Okay. Okay, now Wade, you can't hold me to dates too much because I've lost most of my brain cells, I think, after being in the business. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. We came to California, my wife and I, uh, started a life there. I had a regular shoot job, as they say nowadays. And at some point, for whatever reason I can't remember, I decided we were going to move from California and go to Miami, Florida. Why? I don't know to this day. Anyway, we wound up in Florida, in Miami, and I got a job, and my wife got a job, but there still wasn't a lot of money coming in. So some of you may remember the name Chris Dundee. He was a well-known boxing promoter and such, but he also promoted wrestling shows at the Miami City Auditorium. So I thought, well, you know, if I'm not making enough money here to support us, maybe I'll see what I can do, go talk to Chris. Chris was involved in a major way in most every big boxing show during that time. Um, Anyway, I went down to him and said, is there anything I can do? He says, well, we always need beer sellers. I said, okay, that's fine with me. So he said, just come by every Wednesday night and you can sell beer here. And the way we got paid was however much beer we sold, we got the commission on some of it. Well, the first time that I tried it, I went in and they told me my supervisor was waiting to see me. My supervisor was a broken down boxer who had about three bottles of beer with him and was telling me all sorts of stuff to do. But one of the things that he said was take your button, your badge that shows you're selling beer, turn it inside out, and then write another dollar on it. So that way you get your dollar, plus you get whatever they were giving you. Legit, I said, fine. The next Wednesday, in those days, 
they had something called the Miss America pageant. And he was the one that was promoting it at the city auditorium. So they canceled the wrestling and they had that. Well, at the same time, a bunch of uh, midshipmen from Annapolis who had just graduated came down to Miami on leave. And I mean hundreds. And they um, they'd not been drinking. They'd not seen a woman in a long time. But Chris set them all up in one section of the auditorium. And he told me, he says, you go up and you take care of those. I don't want to do it. I want to watch the wrestling. You go up and do that. So I did, again, no liquor, no women, not much of a social life for those guys. First time in four years they'd been down there. I took, put $5 or something, and again, this is a big time, but I, I doubled whatever I was selling beer for. I couldn't get enough beer fast enough. I made more money in one night than I did the whole time. So I thought, okay, wrestling is great. Now this Miss America pageant went even better. But um, now that's what happened there. And I've been involved selling stuff, doing on a number of different promotions. I also, as a young man or a young boy, um, in the old days, Wade, we had fan clubs, which were, there was a Gory Guerrero fan club, the Roger Mackey fan club, Matt World's Unlimited. When I was in Panama, I joined those clubs so I could keep up with what was going on. I also, during that time, wrote some stories for a magazine called Whale wrestling as you like it and such and I've had a few things um, that I sent to the ring magazine and they put in so I kept my foot in to that now I'm going to switch back to the 60s and the 70s and everything I just kept working a little bit with Jess doing promotion as much as I could also um, I would do some work. Jesse would uh, drive with me, or I'd drive with him, and we'd go to the Olympic Auditorium, and he would be doing a lot of the stuff that um, the LaBelle family wanted him to do and everything. And one time when we're there, I got a call from one of the guys upstairs. Hey, Frank, we need you to go down to the airport and pick up Andre the Giant. I had a small little car. I told him, I said, I'm happy to do that, but there ain't no way in God's great green earth that he can fit in my car. And they said, okay, take whatever car. I said, fine. So I went down to LAX and uh, Andre and his manager got into the car and I swear, I felt it go down yeah. It felt like it was going through the floor, but anyway. So we're driving, we're probably two miles from the airport, and Andre says, hey boss, stop. 
Did I say something to offend him? I hope not. Anyway, he says, we need to get some beer. Okay? Yeah, Andre, Andre says, I want to do this. I said, yes. Yeah. So his manager goes out, and they come back with a case of beer. I don't know how much it had in it, but it was a lot of beer. And for the rest of the trip, he and his manager were sitting in the back, drinking that stuff like mad, <laughs> throwing the cans down on the floor. And I wasn't sharp enough at that time to realize if I got stopped by a cop, I'd probably be in the local jail for the next 20 years. Anyway, that was my experience with Andre. I had one other experience with him, and I know Wade and other people that are younger than I have had the opportunity to see and hear Andre in action and what he does. I was working with Carl Lauer and Jesse on a show at the um, Raincross Center in Riverside. I was in the back and somebody who didn't know I'd already met Andre was saying, Frank, I want you to shake hands with Andre. And I said, okay. I shook hands with him. I put my hand in his and I thought I lost my hand. I couldn't see it anymore. His was so big. Um, it's been a really great ride I'm through. And now that I, there are a lot of good promotions here in Southern California and Northern California. I'm prejudiced because I work with Jesse. I think his is a great promotion, but there's a lot of good promotions. Um, I know Wade knows about the one in Hemet. And there's all sorts of other permission. Wrestling is really blooming. Let me stop and think for a minute if there's anything else I want to say. Wade? Well, real quick, I, <clears throat> I kind of want to revisit earlier when you were talking about the San Bernardino Arena. Okay. Um, growing up, my, my Uncle George, my great Uncle George, he's the one that got me into professional wrestling when I was three years old. He would tell me as a kid stories of the San Bernardino Arena and shows he'd go to. And one story that I remember he would tell me all the time was uh, Classy Freddie Blassie did such a great job one night, you know, working up the crowd right. that the, uh, the fans burnt down his brand new Cadillac in the parking lot. And then the funny thing is, like, 15 years later, I'm sitting at the School of Hard Knocks. I'm BSing with Jesse Hernandez, right? We're telling stories. And I tell him the story that my Uncle George used to tell me. And Jesse goes, brother, I was there. And I'm like, man, what a small world. Like, my uncle was there at the same shows that all of you guys were there at. And then years later, I'm working with all you guys. And it's just a small world. And it's just unbelievable. And that's I love pro wrestling because of that. It brings everybody together. Well, well let me tell you something, Wade. I'm going to surprise you again. Because I was there that night. Wow. Um, wow. And it was just, I ran around to the back of Blessing, and most of the guys parked the car in back of the arena there. And his car, like Jeff says, it was on fire. Oh, I mean, man. You know. Now, the San Bernardino Arena, I don't know how many people that are hearing this have gone to it, but it was really the old-time, old-style wrestling arena. Uh, 
you have bleachers, you have no air conditioning. During the summertime, when the temperature was 100 plus in San Bernardino, and you go, and they drew good crowds, 500, you know, for a small little arena. Yeah. That was good. And everybody sat on these benches. But as I said, no air conditioning. You had to open the top windows. Didn't do a damn bit of good, but that's said. And if you waited, you're, you never went to the arena. Did you? Okay. When you came in, the first row ringside, was probably a foot and a half from the ring. So when the guys were in there wrestling, and you had John Tolas, Freddie Blassie, uh, Gino Garibaldi, uh, the Destroyer, all of the guys passed through there and, and worked. But when if you were sitting front row ringside and somebody was thrown out, they basically landed right at your feet. As a matter of fact, my wife, Marilyn, who was a good Catholic girl and never knew what wrestling was, very sheltered life until she met me. And we were at the arena the one day, one night. She's sitting down there and the guys are working and Mil Mascaras was on the card. And somebody threw Mill out in the, the and he landed out and as I said there was hardly any distance between the ring and the first row seat. He landed right at Marilyn's feet and in broken Spanish was saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry and, and my wife's eyes were about as wide as saucers. She'd never seen anything like this. And this guy landed right on her feet. She said and has told me many times Frank, I should have taken that as a warning. <laughs> so, yeah. wow, yeah, that's incredible. There, there was uh, stories I remember hearing about the San Bernardino Arena as well about it possibly being uh, haunted at one point. Do you know any, uh, anything about that? No, I, I have to be truthful. I don't know anything about that. Um, yeah, now I one sad thing you're talking about being hunted. Do you know of a wrestler his name was Lonnie Main. He worked in Portland and San Francisco a lot. But he did a couple of tours for Mike Bell down here in Southern California. And one night he's wrestling, I can't remember who his opponent was but the opponent had him on top of the uh, ring post and was kicking him and he was coming up and down. And so the match went on and however it ended. And that, that evening he left and the next morning I got a call from a friend who had been at the matches. He says, did you hear about Lonnie? I says, no. Apparently when he left, he was driving to Orange County and crashed his car and died that evening. So that, you know, that was real world and that really put a damper on things. One more story on uh, Norfolk, can I tell you? Absolutely. Okay. 
um, there was, okay, I mentioned George Becker to you, and I mentioned Brother Frank Jarrett, whose son, the son of uh, Brother Frank, became, I think, an assistant editor at Sports Illustrated. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, Frank was a tough worker. I didn't know what the term was at that time, but he was tough. And he and Becker were doing their match. And Becker, and I'm sorry, I made a mistake on that. God, old age is tough. That's the only excuse I've got. This is the best of us, Frank. But it was, yes, it was a wrestler by the name of Hans Schmidt who had the German personality and such. And he and George were fighting it out. And somehow Schmidt, and he was hated, he had gotten Becker down on the floor and he was beating him on the on the head and George was bleeding. And again, Becker was like God in Norfolk. And he was laying there and you could see a little bit of blood coming out. And then all of a sudden, Hanschmidt threw his hands in the air. Becker grabbed his face. Somebody that didn't like the villains from the third row up in the auditorium had taken a slingshot or something and had an industrial size staple of some type and had taken it and shot it at Schmidt but it had gone down and it landed about an inch above George's eye. So that they stopped the Lewis, the promoter, said that we're not gonna we're not gonna finish the show. That was too much. They stopped the whole thing. Stopped the whole thing. Did yeah. they ever find the person? No, not to my knowledge. Lucky, lucky for that person there. Right? But oh, let me tell you, they want to skin them alive. For, yeah. yeah, but the, and that's where I realized that the guys that do wrestling, they want you to be involved in everything, but you have to understand that they are professionals. They're doing their actions with that built into them. You can't do things like that. Um, I had a friend of mine, Sonny Meyer, that was struck with a knife and had, I think, 20 stitches or so in his leg. Um, It's a business that I love. But people have to realize these men, and now women, they're simply athletes working hard to maintain for their, to maintain a good life for their families. So you can get as excited as you want, um, but you shouldn't do something like that. But again, going back to that incident, I had no knowledge of that at the time. I just know, wow, something bad happened. So... But, um, well, thankfully, you know, in the modern era, yeah. a lot of that doesn't take place. You know, especially the mainstream WWE, right. they got the security, they got all the means to do that. Yeah. On the indie level, though, you know, money's tight. Yes. You can't really have security. You can't have background checks and that kind of stuff. It's tougher, but I think the 
luckily though, for the performers and for the fans alike, you know, fans are smartened up more. Yeah, which is a is a good thing. You are is uh, well. Yes and no way. Yeah. Great. Yeah. As someone who was bought up in the kayfabe area, yeah. I I have a problem with being smartened up in that. But I know life goes on and things change, yeah. and that's what happens. It's just guys my age that watch Luthez and Argentina Rocco and a lot of these people. They um they wonder why the wrestling was quote so good in these days and it's so bad in these days well that's not true the wrestling in my era was good and bad the wrestling today is good and bad yeah. and that's what you have to, it's very easy when you get older and say the good old days but some and, and I firmly believe that by the same token you go back and look Kenny's folks of 15, 20 years ago, some of it was great, some of it was awful. The same thing as it is today. But the guys today, the young guys, are still working their hearts out to give the people that pay good money a show that they will enjoy. And they're just as serious and want to make it real and they do, as the guys in my generation, I'm just old, I like the guys I watched, and that's not the way Stone Cold says it, but that's the way Frank Mott says it. I want to I wanna thank you so much for you know taking time out, meeting uh, with me here. Uh, for those that are listening and wondering about what's going on, because usually we got the studio interviews and whatnot, we decided to make this, uh, this interview more uh, more intimate in a way more you know casual Frank and I are sitting here enjoying uh, a nice afternoon here at Starbucks and uh, Frank thank you so much for being on the podcast today my pleasure Wade I mean it and I thank you very much for allowing me on your podcast okay you are always welcome at any time you want Frank <laughs>